You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. At precisely 1900 hours, I entered the cabin of the spacecraft and settled back for liftoff. Ready, Kelvin? Ready. Good luck. Donatas Banyonis. Vladislav Dvorjetsky. Natalia Bondarchuk. Play the leading roles in Solaris. The scene is somewhere in the cosmos. The time, the distant future. The place, a planet yet unknown to us. on the novel by Stanislav Lem. Accepted, Kelvin, or you are lost. Let us take you with us to Solaris, planet of mystery, embodiment of man's latent conflict with the unknown. Man, face to face with his conscience, and with his past. Directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, who gave us the classic film Andrei Rublev. A studio must film production. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Just remember... We're not on Earth. Also back in the booth is Mr. Keith Gordon. Well, actually, it's more like your memory of Keith Gordon. 
This week we are looking at Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris. Released in 1972, the film is the second of third known adaptations of Stanislaw Lem's 1961 book of the same name. The film tells the tale of Chris Kelvin, who travels to a station orbiting the planet Solaris, a sentient ocean planet that seems to be able to read the unconscious thoughts of those on the station and conjure up living embodiments of someone from the astronaut's past with varying results. For Chris, it's his wife, Hari, who committed suicide about a decade or so ago. Kind of not clear, but there's going to be a lot of kind of not clear on this. So we're going to be spoiling things maybe, but maybe we'll be helping. I'm not sure. Yeah. So, Rob, when was the first time you saw Solaris and what did you think? Uh, I have to go back. I think it may have been Kino, could have been New Yorker. On VHS, they put out all the Tarkovsky stuff. And I just remember kind of going through that. I think it was when I was working at Thomas Video at the time and was just kind of blown away by this guy's work. I mean, Andre Rublev and then this one. And then, uh, obviously, uh, Criterion now has it and has done uh, a DVD and a Blu-ray edition. And that's when I saw it. So it's probably almost 20 years ago, I think, when I was working in the video store. And I just thought it was great and in a lot of ways I think it's a good companion piece to 2001 and we can kind of compare and contrast these two films as sort of I guess maybe two different ways of looking at uh, space and what we do in that period especially in that period late 60s early 70s it's interesting and Keith how about you I first saw it 47 years ago when it opened in New York uh the Ziegfeld Theater, went with my best buddy, uh, Paul Heckinger. Uh, and the Ziegfeld was the greatest place to see movies. It, it, it's or I think, it, you know, I don't even know if it exists anymore. It certainly was broken up into pieces some years back. But at the time when we saw it, it was that was like where Apocalypse Now opened in New York. It was such a gigantic screen and an amazing theater. And there were about 12 people in the audience. And we actually stayed and watched it twice in a row because it was so like, Holy crap, what was that? And what do you think? And went, so we just sat and this, they didn't actually clear out theaters so much in New York then. So we just sat and we watched the whole, like almost three hours twice in a row over. And I don't think I'd seen it again until I knew we were doing this. And I got out my Criterion copy, which I had never sat down and watched. And it was like pretty amazing to go back, heading towards 50 years later, find it as much as did stuck in my brain. Uh, I was amazed how many images and ideas and emotions came right back. So, you know, the second I saw the shot of the tree early on, I was like, I remember the shot of the tree. So clearly, you know, it was a fairly deep, uh, deep effect. You were like, what, 11, 12 years old when you saw this? Yeah, well, 72, I would have been 11, so yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I saw it whenever it opened, and when I looked it up, it said November 72, so I would have, that's, that's, you know, but I went, I know, I know we went like opening weekend in New York, so. Holy cow. Did you go because they were selling it as Russia's answer to 2001? Yeah, and 2001 was like my favorite movie and I was like that was the movie that when I, I saw I saw that opening weekend in New York when I was when I was 8 and while I didn't understand it, I was still obsessed with it and dragged my poor father back over and over and over again to see it over and over and over again. So the fact that yeah, 2001 was brought up in connection with it, that absolutely made me want to see it. 
And while it, it was a very different experience, I, I mean, yes, I think it, it is understandable why those two things get, the two films get connected because they're both very metaphysical. They both take science fiction to a whole other kind of level. They're not operating in the well way that most people think of science fiction or the cliche image of science fiction that we all grew up with, you know, of monsters and, and, and robots. And, you know, they're both really looking at the meaning of existence and, and, and humanity and, and our place in the universe. So in that sense, they're very connected. I also think there's some stylistic things that, uh, that Tarkovsky sort of borrowed or coincidentally used that Kubrick had used. And he was very aware of 2001 because he actually didn't like 2001. But yet, nonetheless, there are definitely some elements visually where I thought, yeah, that's sort of really a 2001 piece of editing or shooting or lighting. As much as he didn't like it, it still seems to have had an echo. I like how some kids are like, oh, I want to see The Great Mouse Detective again or Goonies. And you're like, yeah, come on, Dad, let's go see 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> my kid i tell you he's always wanting to see this kubrick stuff well well that one i will say when i when 2001 just to digress for a second but i don't want to guess too far off solaris but 2001 my my, my dad did take me thinking it was gonna be a rocket ship movie because i was really you know the posters and everything were like and rocket ships on it so that's what he thought he was getting us into and i think i probably sat there with my mouth open and and i was completely freaked out by it and uh, yeah, like I said, I didn't understand it, but I was obsessed by the fact that I didn't understand it. And I wanted to like find a way to understand it. So I just wanted to keep going back and watching it over and over. But I, I don't think he had any idea when he took me in what he was what he was taking me into. So Solaris has a a magical power over me. And I have tried three times to watch the movie before I finally successfully made it all the way through the movie because I don't know if it's the beeping that happens during the uh, Burton scene when they're showing the movie that uh, of him, the movie within a movie, or if it's just the driving scene. But that driving scene, I am out like a light every time I tried to watch this, and I could not make it through. And it's only five minutes of screen time, but I don't know what it is about that scene just put me under every single time. So I finally watch this movie this was a challenge to myself like late last year early this year where i was like i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna watch solaris god damn it and i'm gonna make it all the way through and i did and i'm proud so pretty much this episode is a success right there there you go <laughs> we can just stop it stop the tape <laughs> all right so what have you been working on guys <laughs> But it's amazing how many other films now that I've actually seen Solaris have so many similar themes. And to see just, you know, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Annihilation, the Alex Garland film from 2018. And the movie ends, spoilers, with this whole idea of doppelgangers. And it's just like, okay, the idea of doubling and stuff, which really comes to the fore in the 2002 remake of Solaris with an actual character who's replaced by another character or the, or the same person. But then this whole idea of, of the, the guy's wife coming back, it's just like, okay, yeah, this whole idea of the uncanny and things. I'm like, oh, all right. I can really see Tarkovsky playing the same, you know, sandbox, but how many other films since then have kind of return to that and like the literal return of Soderbergh in 2002 or just other people kind of saying, Oh, I want to play with this idea. I want to play with that idea. So 
Yeah. And then him also kind of reacting against 2001, like you guys have talked about, is it's an interesting answer to, you know, he's answering Kubrick and then other people are, are responding to his work. And that opening is so dense with just the symbolism and the objects. I could not get over just the, the opening of Solaris in and of itself, like even before that driving scene. That's a mini movie right there. That's what, 40 minutes, I think, before they ever leave the Earth. And that is definitely not in the book. I finally, I actually sat down and I listened to the book as well. And so as I'm listening to it and they're starting in space, I'm like, wait a second, where's the driving scene? How are they going to describe the driving scene? (laughs) Maybe there's something I'm missing there. But yeah, that opening is just amazing. And just the, the use of the color, this very idyllic setting, and the house and the family relationships and all of these things going on. There's It's just jam-packed with all of this stuff. And when I'm reading articles about the movie, so much of it has to do with that opening, even more than when he gets onto the space station. I think the opening, you know, it seems to me like it's creating a, a contrast that, that you know, that Lem didn't do in the book. I haven't read the book, but but I did read that none of that was in the book. But to me, the whole film is sort of about nature versus versus sort of the technological world. And, and so I I think he needed it, and he needed it again. Spoilers to be able to set up where he wanted to go ultimately with the ending of the piece, and to give it a grounding. The thing it's funny because the symbols, and I get them all, and the horse, and there are all sorts of symbols. But I, I, my memory of the film, and then seeing it again, I didn't react to it as symbolically as I, that wasn't to be the most interesting stuff about it. It's like I know the symbols are all there, but I was so caught up on a more just prosaic story, emotion, character idea level i mean not that they're prosaic ideas i mean they're very bizarre but like the the the, all the symbolic stuff was sort of i noted it but it wasn't what pulled me into the movie i i knew it was there but i was and the stuff that was symbolic i was much more interested in things like the black and white color which of course i've always heard the things that like oh that what that didn't the fact that the film switches from black and white and color doesn't really have any meaning and Tarkovsky was, I guess, on record saying that was just because there was a lack of color film stock, so we were just using whatever we could. But I don't really buy that because you wouldn't bother having a shot in the driving sequence that changes from black and white to color rather spectacularly if you weren't doing stuff with it where you were making a thematic point. And I don't quite know what the thematic point is, and I'd be very curious what you guys' thoughts about that are, but but I don't think that that was random. In fact, to me, that's one of the symbols that people – even just reading reviews, and even people just don't talk about that element, but it seems like a big deal. The film is constantly switching between mono, mon, monochrome and color, and what what is that actually about? It's not really explained what it is, if it's some sort of show trial or if it's documentary footage of a debrief like once the astronaut comes back. But him going to Chris Calvin's house, this Burton, and showing him – this film and going, this was my testimony. And you can, you can tell now that it's, you know, it must've been a decade or more earlier because he's now balding and he's older. 
and just playing it and fast forwarding it and sort of selectively showing him bits and then and then how that's intercut with them watching it and especially like the um I don't it's not his mother it's like the helper there uh Anna I think her name is and how she just wants to sit in on it and Burton's like ah eh, it's boring like you know you probably wouldn't be interested oh I'll watch it and she kind of gets into it she's like uh huh you know like what you know what's going on here and how that's used as a as a device to kind of lead us forward into where we're going to help set that up and i thought that was really well done yeah the whole idea of the burton movie the contents of it are in the book and it's basically a report that chris reads because so much of the book is chris being an investigator and trying to find out what's going on with solaris what's going on with the crew imagine this movie starting where he ends up showing up at the the space station and so when he shows up he has no idea what's going on he you know finds snout sartorius is locked up in his own room he you know hears things he sees this woman walking around on the station everything's in disarray uh, his friend has committed suicide, uh, Gabarian, and so he basically puts on the, the deerstalker and becomes the main detective of this film and is trying to put all this stuff together. And he's doing that through questioning the quote-unquote witnesses of Sartorius and Snout. He's doing that by looking through uh, Gabarian stuff, and he's also doing that by looking through reports. And Gabarian even leaves notes to say, like, look at this report and look at this report. So this whole idea of the Burton film is actually one of the reports, the, uh, the Apocrypha, I I think it's called that that Chris goes back and reads. So I, I found it very interesting that they took that material and moved that up in the proceedings, made Burton a character and then had this. Yeah, it looks like a show trial to me. I mean, this being a Russian film, I was just like, okay, this kind of smacks of somebody being on trial because they don't seem to be very sympathetic. And then to go back to your point, Keith, as far as black and white versus color, it's very odd to me that when they show the so there's the the movie the Burton movie within the movie and then even within that they go one level deeper and they go to color footage which is what Burton shot of the planet surface where he saw this baby being formed on the surface of the planet and saw all of these different things on the surface and none of that is in that color footage but yeah going that one level deeper and why would that be color footage spliced into a black and white movie, which is part of this color sequence of the film? It definitely seems like there was something that we're supposed to glean from that. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I when I first, I remember when I was a kid and I first saw the film, and I sat there with my friend Paul and we debated. Well, is it like the black and white is real and color is the imagination, or vice versa? But it doesn't work that neatly. I mean, whatever was going on with that symbolism, and it goes through the whole film where you at times are in black and white and times in color. It's not anything as solvable as, as I wish it was because we all want to have all the answers, just like the movie's about that on some level. Uh, and maybe that's what he was playing with on side, was, was forcing you just to not have an answer. But I, I was never able to find a key with it. And I kept looking for... You know, what is it saying? Why is this in black and white? Why did we leave this room and it's black? Why we come back now? It's in color. I still am seeing it again. I, I was not able to find it emotionally seems to always make sense, but it doesn't it doesn't on, on a literal level make sense. And maybe that's what it was. Maybe it's poetic. Maybe it, he's just 
you know, there are moments that feel like black and white and moments that feel like color, but the film seems so intentional. I can't believe that there wasn't something even deeper in Dakarsi's mind, which maybe we'll never know, but it seems everything seems quite thought out. So it, I, I, it's hard for me to think, Oh, it just was, you know, Oh, let's just shoot this, this moment, black and white and this moment color sort of arbitrarily. I keep looking for a study key with this film. You know, I keep looking for like, okay, the horse means this, the yellow balloon means this, the butterflies mean this, and there is nothing out there. Everybody's just like, well, maybe they're this, maybe they're that. And I, I also think that if anybody did say that and came out with this means this, this means that, they'd be so full of shit because I don't think that anybody can glean a hundred percent of what's going on here. You know, it's interesting, Keith, that you bring up maybe it's poetics in some way, and that my understanding of Tarkovsky was is that he was a poet before he started making films. So I also find it interesting that at one point in uh, the dialogue, when I think it's when Burton comes to visit, um, he's talking to Chris, and Chris is like, I'm a scientist, I'm not a poet. Like, we're here to research things and figure things out. I can't kind of take these leaps of emotion and faith that, you know, someone who's a poet can. So I think it was, I think it's kind of interesting that the lead character in the film is kind of down on poetry. And ultimately turns his back on the science, which is kind of the arc of the character that, you know, by, by late in the film, he's, he's saying to his, his wife, uh, you know, uh, you mean much more to me than the truth and you mean much more to me than science. And, you know, which is a huge you know, change in, from where this guy starts. Part of what the, the, the measure of how successful the, the film is on, a, on just a storytelling level is that, you know, you really buy that arc. You watch this guy go from being a very a rather cold, removed kind of scientific guy who's going up there seemingly, you know, very disconnected, you know, in the early sequences, he doesn't seem to be very emotionally connected to, to anything around him. It's as, as if the loss of his wife has kind of shut him down. And now he's just somebody who, you know, is a scientist in, in, in the most intellectual version of that. And, and over the arc of the film, he kind of refines his soul and loses his mind, which is kind of an interesting, an interesting trade-off. And, 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 you know, for a film to portray that, and an actor to portray it convincingly is not not easy. I mean, that's the kind of thing that could have just come off as really hokey or silly or too big an arc for a character to cover in just a couple hours. And, and yet I feel like the film does it really well. That his father calls him an accountant. And it's just like, yeah, he's such a cool guy. I kept thinking of that um, Money Python skit where the parents are the poets and the son wants to go off and go to the mines and work there. I like your fancy suit. Is that what they're wearing up in Yorkshire now? It's just an ordinary suit, Father. Huh. It's all I've got apart from the overalls. <laughs> How will you like it down the mine, Ken? Oh, it's not too bad, Mum. We're using some new tungsten carbide drills for the preliminary coal face scaring operations. Oh, that sounds nice, dear. Tungsten carbide drills? What the bloody hell's tungsten carbide drills? <laughs> it's something they use in coal mining, Father. It's something they use in coal mining, Father. You bloody fancy talk since you left London. Not that again. <laughs> is, is that hard, day, dear? His new play opens at National Theatre tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's good. Good? Good? What do you know about it? What do you know about getting up at five o'clock in the morning to fly to Paris, back at the old Vic for drinks at twelve, sweating the day through press interviews, television interviews, then getting back here at ten to wrestle with the problem of an almost sexual nymphomaniac drug addict involved in the ritual murder of a well-known Scottish footballer? That's a full working day, lad. 
And that character of Anna that you said, like, maybe she's the help. I mean, I've read so many different things. Like, maybe she's the help. Maybe she's the father's second wife. Maybe she's an aunt. There were so many things because she's never really made clear. There's a little girl who's on the outside of the cabin that shows up at one point, and she just kind of appears and then disappears almost to kind of presage what's going to happen with Hari later on. I'm very curious if we're what we're supposed to take from Chris burning all of those papers before he goes on this journey. I mean, are we supposed to think he is making a clean break with Earth and that he'll never come back to this place again? I mean, why else would he burn the photos, burn the, the pictures of Hari, his dead wife, and then the picture of his mother? That's what I took from it, uh, is just him going, right, I don't think I'm ever coming back. But at the same time, there's part of me that goes, why wouldn't you just leave it for your dad? Or why wouldn't you take some of it with you? But it just sort of seems like he's like, all right, I guess this is where I go to die. And maybe because there's this conversation that's run through the, I, I think they call them what, the Solarisists or something, or Solarians, the ones who have studied Solaris, that it appears that he studied it, but he's never been there. And I think it's just him reviewing everything. And I guess we can kind of make that leap and go, he knows what he's going into. It's like he's heading into battle and he's probably not going to come back. It's very fatalist, I guess. Well, there is some, a couple of lines with his dad saying, if you don't come back, you know, I, I know, you know, what to do essentially. So, so clearly, clearly he's aware that it's, it's a possibility. I mean, how much he thinks that it's, it's what's going to happen versus it could happen is I think left kind of cl- unclear intentionally, but I, but it's definitely on the radar of, oh, he may not return. Right. And then he brings a box of earth with him. I found very interesting too. So he's got the, the earth of home and it really, again, grounds us literally in this opening and really brings that to mind. I mean, and we'll go back to this opening. We'll go, well, we'll, we'll really go back to it at the end of the film, but we'll go back to this idea of the father and the mother and the home life and all of these things through other films within this film as we go along as well. Cause he brings not just the earth, but he also brings some videotapes that will be privy to later on in the movie, some home movies where we get to see Chris grow up and we get to see the father as a younger person. We get to see the mother, even get to see Harry a little bit. And I don't think it's any sort of coincidence that Harry and the mother could really easily be mistaken for one another. I was slightly confused on this watch for about a minute in that scene where he's walking around with this woman and this is during later. And I go, Oh, it's it. He's having a memory back to when he was with her. And then he says something and I go, Oh no, that's, that's his mom. So even I got confused on (laughs) a recent viewing and I've seen it a couple of times. The two women don't really look that much alike. What, what he did that's so interesting is he, their silhouette is almost identical. Their hair, uh, the shape of their body, that you know, so that it, he really created a situation where, depending on how he shot something, it could either be very mysterious if it, if it was his mother, if it was Hari, but at other times it's very clear. There's like stuff in the hospital late on when 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 you see the mother clearly, you know that's not Hari. I mean, it takes a minute to go, who is that again? And you go, oh oh, my, the mother. But but he kind of did an interesting thing because they're not really doppelgangers. But they can be. It's sort of it's up to him as a as a filmmaker, depending on how he shows you them, you know how how much they are they are the same. 
And I'm trying to remember the scene where Hari gets multiplied when he is sick, if there are images of the mother mixed in with that as well. Yeah, I thought, yeah you mean towards the end when he's in the sort of that hospital bed and hang a little bit? Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that, there's definitely, that is where the mother seems to be present and even the dog from the earth who is with the mother and then you know, it's Hari and then the mother and then Hari again. And then in the, and then the and the outtakes on on uh, the Criterion, you know, where they have the scenes that were part of the original cut. There, that sequence goes on even much longer of the switching back and forth between Hari and the mother, and it's actually more uh, of an elaborate dance between the two of them. And he does all these kind of interesting things, that, like the camera pans over, and then it's Hari, and then by the time it comes back, it's the mother. But then Hari's on the other side of the room, and there's no evident cut in it. And he, he, it certainly was cut down for like the official version, but that was the one thing in the out in the uh, deleted scenes that I actually thought, oh, I'm sorry that wasn't in the actual film that we all saw because that sequence that was particularly striking, uh, the, the dance between those two characters. So when I finally sat down and watched this, not only did I watch the the official version, but I also had the longer version that is, I think it's right around two hours and 50 some minutes. I had that on my laptop at the same time. So that's why I've got in my notes later on, like this is different. This is switch. This is different. And just because it was interesting because I think almost all of those deleted scenes are, are integrated into that version. And with that version, the color going back to the color, the color is so muddy at times that there are times where I'm like, is this black and white or is this color? Because it is just so down and dirty that it's tough to even tell what I'm looking at. And just looking from one screen to another, looking from the laptop up to the TV, it's like, wow, the color difference between these two screens. And it's, you know, one version on one screen and one version on the other. It's like, the, the the one that we see on the Criterion Collection is so much brighter, and you can tell the difference between the black and white and the color scenes. And even when he's using Kodak color versus whatever the Russian brand of color film was, there was a huge difference in that, just one so much brighter and cleaner and clearer than the other one. That might just be the transfer, too, because I, that, I watched the longer one that you gave me, and I had seen the um, the shorter one, and that was the reason why I decided to watch it, was because it was a little bit longer than the one that I, you know, because I hadn't seen that extended version. And, um, that, like I said, the transfer wasn't all that great on it. But yeah, it looks me, like it garbage, right? Yeah, but there was some really interesting things in it, like I said, in some of the scenes and the way certain things played out that was a little bit different than my memory of what I had seen before. Like, for example, I, for some reason in my head, I really remember them focusing on the Bruegel painting a lot longer in, in the first version of the film, or maybe it's just me uh, playing that out in my head. But I, I swear, like you were talking about that driving sequence, it's like, okay, I get it. It's a painting. And... It reminds you of home. Okay, great. Now, can we move on to the next shot? But I just remember seeing it. I, I want to say that maybe it's probably a false memory, but I just <laughs> remember the first time I saw it, just a lot of focus on that. The reason why I was bringing up the symbols so much and the, and the objects is just because I find it very interesting what makes it from the earthbound location to the Solaris station, because we are going to see those exact same images, those same items at the station, which then paints the station in a new color because it's like, okay, is he 
in a different place, why would Snout have the exact same butterfly collection on in his room that Chris had at the family cabin? Why would he have the same? Uh, I think it's in Gabarian's room. There are uh, pictures of balloons. Why would he have that versus the other? And it's just like, okay, this it it sets up this interesting dichotomy of what was on earth versus what is there. Um, and then again, you know, when we see like you were talking about the dog and these other echoes of home, it's like how many of these things are echoes. And then also how much of it maybe is created by Solaris because that's the whole thing. When he gets to Solaris station, he finds that Solaris is able to create things out of thin air and take things out of people's minds and make them real. So I'm curious if maybe when he showed up at the station that those objects just suddenly appeared, like maybe they didn't have man of La Mancha in their library until Chris appears. Well, let's talk about that library because that library or like boardroom as I wrote down, because it's got a table and a chandelier and all this. I'm like, why is that on a space station? Like, <laughs> just like it, it seems the most impractical thing ever on the space station. There's these busts and there's, you know, all these books all over the place. And I'm just like, if that thing is going through, you know, uh, zero gravity weightlessness and, you know, being on a ship and being hoisted all the way out there, that stuff's not going to sit in place. I'm <laughs> yeah, chandelier on a space station. It's a little much and it's a little gauche as well. But I like it in terms of that possible explanation that you raised, which is that, yeah, maybe none of those things were there. Maybe a lot of that interior design that we're seeing has been brought by Chris, but also brought by the other astronauts. I mean, that, that, that as each person was there and they were going through this process, that maybe it isn't. They never talk about elements other than the people being brought to life by Solaris. But it is interesting to think of those kind of important symbolic images being something that 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 the planet has also created to bring them back elements of their home and i kind of find that a really interesting theory that makes a lot of sense and i'm sure there's been a lot of and for the life of me i can't think of any before this but it would have been in that like keith you were talking about that 1950s science fiction kind of thing of like space madness movies right or they're on a ship and something's gone wrong and and there's a problem but I like look at the design of the space station and, and Kubrick's design is very antiseptic. It's very clean line. Everything has its place. It's very nice. Here is like I, I wrote down, I go, it's like a working class version of it. It's kind of greasy and messy. And part of it might be because there was chaos when all the people left or disappeared uh, in that. So therefore, even just in the hallways or in that uh, big white room with the round windows, um, that that's about as clean and antiseptic as you get outside of his room where he's having like the fever dream and all of that stuff. But there's also where he's walking through what can be only de described as kind of the mainframe section. And there's all the wires and that, and like the wires are sparking. He goes over and he pulls one and stops sparking. I'm like, it kind of, you know, proto alien, maybe, you know, that kind of horrible stuff in space stuff that comes later influence. Oh, well, I mean, I, I definitely felt like alien was, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely alien was influenced by this. And I think probably a lot of things that came after were, but I do think. Again, I'm intrigued by your, you know, what the theory that that you were raising, which is that this place may have been antiseptic. You know, it may have been. I mean, because some of those places that we see the corridors with the computers, 
are very antiseptic. There are areas the room he first goes into are very, is very space, very 2001. I mean, his, the room that he sets himself up in. And, you know, as opposed to the much more chaotic and strange and homey in quotes, but like in a very weird way that so much of the ship has become. And, and so that, again, that would speak to the possibility that maybe, again, the influence of Solaris has literally affected even physically how the ship looks, how it's designed, what it what the spaces are like, because certainly there are big areas of it, that, that curved hallway and everything that really could be right out of a 2001 type of much more technological movie. And there's a real contrast between that and some of the other spaces like that library. You know, I'd always sort of just thought that was just a piece of odd and interesting design. But I, I like the idea that it was that that was sort of something that that is actually that if you'd seen this ship when I first got there, it wouldn't look the way it looks now. Yeah, there's another thing that before I rewatched it this time, for some reason, I, I was explaining it to my wife and she goes, well, what are you watching? And I was explaining what the film was. And one of the things that I told her is, is I said, well, they go to the space station and the planet kind of messes with the people that have come to research it. It's like this thing is a defense mechanism. But I don't think that's actually spelled out in the film. Um, to me, it kind of feels like... Like, my explanation is kind of like how maybe someone would explain a George Romero zombie film. It's like, well, this is the reason why there's zombies. Well, he never really says why there's zombies. They're just zombies. Am I right or wrong on this, that you think this is some sort of defense mechanism by the planet, or is there something else going on? Well, I listened to the one of the commentaries, or, or the commentary that's on the, the, the Criterion, and they point out some of the... I don't want to call them logic flaws, but some of the perhaps questionable things as far as the movie goes, like when he's watching that movie by uh, uh, Burton and they say, okay, that's it. We're going to stop solaristics. There's not going to be this anymore. And it's like, okay, but this movie's 10, maybe 20 years before Chris is going up there to determine where they're going, whether they're going to stop the study of Solaris or not. And it's like, well, it sounds like that was decided 20 years ago. And then the, this whole idea of what you're talking about, it's like, when did the planet start messing with the guys? And there's some debate as far as when did they shoot uh, x-rays or radiation down at the planet's surface? And yeah, is this a defense against them irradiating the planet? And I got that more from the book than I did from the movie. But I can see what you're saying as far as, is this a defense mechanism? Is the planet then saying, okay, if you guys are going to screw with me and hurt me, then I'm going to do something to hurt you back. It's funny. I, I, and, I and I don't really have a – I kind of feel like the planet is more ultimately benign than that. And I, it's more to me like a cre- creative force. It, it, it you know, Ultimately, it, it, it's I, – I, I don't know. I wish I could defend this position, but when I watch the film, I feel like I feel like we're supposed to think that the planet is this threatening thing. But as the film goes along, I feel like it's it's sort of like a proto god or something. It's trying to create life. It's trying to bring these people back their memories. It's trying at the end of the film. It tries to give him back his home. It's it's not fully able to to pull it all off yet. It's it does things imperfectly, but. But but it, I, I was I was more intrigued feeling that it was actually a force of if not good not evil either just a, it just a, like sort of the the non the amoralness of creativity 
um, rather than a, a force that was trying to drive them crazy or, or screw with them. I, I don't really have a, uh, a way to point that out in the film and say, no, I, my interpretation is right. It just to me felt more interesting than just, oh, it's just trying to drive them away because it seems like the plan that has enough, has enough power in it that it can certainly find other ways to do it rather than this really roundabout way to, way to deal with them. Slow psychological torture. Yeah, I also was picking up the whole idea of the butterflies under glass. And it's like, are the people studying Solaris or is Solaris, Solaris studying the astronauts? And the whole idea of sleep is such a major important, you know, we're talking about the difference between Earth and space. Well, here we've got awake and sleeping and they go into sleep so much. They talk about it. They quote Cervantes about sleep. They have all of this stuff and there are dreams galore in this movie. The whole idea that once you go to sleep on Solaris Station, then Solaris is going to go into your thoughts. I don't know what it is, but it can read your thoughts easier while you're sleeping than when you're awake and then conjure up something from your sleep that, and that's the thing. Is it a comfort? Is it a memory? Is it something it's a bad memory are all of the memories of the men on here is it because man is a flawed creature is that why these memories are so torturous to them that's also a good question but you know we see hari the next morning after chris has gone to sleep and now she is a creation of solaris and then that really kind of kicks this whole movie into high gear as far as what is a person and who, what is a memory and what did Chris do in order to, you know, create this to him, a horrible memory, which he then eventually learns how to fall in love with. And I also like how he tells her to get some sleep and she says she doesn't know how. Right. And also I think maybe, um, instead of, you know, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to sign up to Keith's point here about uh, being a creative force that, it appears to my mind that she keeps evolving. She doesn't keep doing the same thing. So each time she comes back, she has a bit more knowledge. She's a bit more refined in terms of who she is and, and all of these things that are around them. So, And she also seems more real. It seems like she's, you know, her emotions are more real. She seems closer. It's just like watching Pinocchio become the real little boy. It's like each, each day, first the two iterations, but then each time, the more time goes by, the more, full she seems, the more human she seems, which again to me bespeaks that the the planet itself trying to learn how to create true life, you know, and, and that ultimately it is a force for good. I mean, uh, Chris in a lot of ways is said, I mean, he was this cold person. He was cut off from his heart. He was cut off from his soul. And so whatever madness he goes through, uh, I can't help feeling that the journey is more towards something positive than negative because he was somebody that was sort of dead inside. And so even finding this not fully real version of his wife reawakens something very important to him that sort of is it worth existing without, which is why I can't necessarily say it's a force for good, but it certainly doesn't seem evil in the end in terms of its effect. I also read somebody had a really interesting comment too about the planet, like learning to do this stuff, like talking about how we briefly see a little person come running out of, uh, I forget which of the rooms it is, but was that an early attempt for the planet to create a child and it didn't know how to do it right. So it instead, Created, created a midget instead of a, a child. And that there, there's a lot of evidence in the film that, that the planet is literally learning to flex its muscles and do these things, which, is, which to me is a really intriguing notion. 
which there's two things on that. First, the the note that I had about the little person, and that was when he goes to meet uh, Sartorius the first time. He kind of comes out of the room and then goes back in. And I wrote down in my notes, I go, of course, this is a dream sequence. There's a little person, (laughs) which is which is that line that Peter Dinklage has in Living in Oblivion, where he says, I don't even have dreams with dwarves in them. The only place I've seen dwarves in dreams is in stupid movies like this. Oh, make it weird. Put a dwarf in it. Everyone will go, whoa, whoa, whoa. There must be a fucking dream. There's a fucking dwarf in it. Well, I'm sick of it. You can take this dream sequence and shove it up your ass. But this, I think, also the, the point that you bring bring up now to me puts another wrinkle into, and sorry to get into the 2001 talk, that that's the one thing that people also point to 2001 and say, well, it's about human evolution and see where the monkeys in the beginning and now we're in space and technology evolves. So, so I guess in some way it is about that's the evolution of that idea over here, which I guess maybe connects in another way between those two films in a way I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, I like the whole idea of her dress and that there are no ends to the lace that is in the dress. And so then they, they end up having to cut it off. Solaris is not perfect insofar as recreating her dress. She doesn't have any shoes. Like when Chris has his memory of her, apparently he doesn't remember her with shoes on. So she has no shoes when she becomes flesh. And then when she comes back after he shoots her off in a rocket ship, the, the first Hari, when she comes back, she knows enough to cut herself out of her dress. She doesn't even have to look or understand anything. She has that memory. And I've always wonder, is there another Hari who was out in that spaceship still going around or does she disappear or what happens? And that just always seems like the most horrific thing to me is that somewhere out there, there was another version of Hari. And I know that comes back a little bit more in the 2002 version, but, and it even comes up a little bit more in the book, I think. And here it doesn't become like such the focal point of like, you shot me off on a rocket. What are you doing? (laughs) Also reminds me of kind of the ideas of, you know, replicants and Blade Runner or something, you know, where it's like, are they human? Are they not human? Is it okay to kill them? Is it not okay to kill them? You know, and sort of having that conversation. Yeah, there was a BFI book about um, Solaris, and I can't remember the author's name, but he was making a lot of comparisons between Lem and Dick and even and really more the Tarkovsky because he was talking about the horse at the beginning and how afraid of the horse the little boy is like he had never seen a horse before and he was just like well maybe this is like uh, do androids dream of electric sheep and this is post animal you know there are no more horses so this kid's never seen a horse before like a real one or something so I was like I don't know we're, we're going off on a tangent here bring it back a little bit guy but you know I, I could kind of understand that. The one thing that I found interesting, too, when I was reading the book is they have these long, drawn-out conversations, Sartorius, Snout, and Chris, and it's very funny because they they talk around the problem of these visitors that they have, and to the point where if Chris 
goes off a little bit too much and starts to talk about these things as if they're real or even just addresses the the problem head on, he gets shut down by the other two scientists and he's not viewed as a quote unquote real scientist coming up there. And I found it very interesting that they kept referring to it. I know this is a translation from the Polish, but they kept referring to the visitors as guests. And I thought, okay, that's very appropriate because guest has the same root as, as ghost. So I've, I, I just, you know, I thought it was a very smart use of the term guest in that area. That is cool. I did not realize it was the same route, but that that certainly makes a lot of sense emotionally. Because I'm very curious, too. Like, who are these other people that are haunting Sartorius and Snout and Gabarian? I mean, I think with Gabarian, it was a son, but with Snout... I don't think we ever see what is haunt- haunting Snout. And then that Snout always has like new wounds and he's always got his hand bandaged up and it seems to be a new bandage every time. And he's got that torn coat. It's like, what is going on in Snout's room? <laughs> That's the sequel. Also, part of the reason why he might be getting beat up is there's a line. I think it's in the I, I called it the boardroom. But anyway, like the study where uh, Sartorius gets on to Chris and goes, look. The whole time you've been here, you've had to been babysat by Snout. Like, what are you doing? Like, stop messing around and get to work. So maybe there's things that we're not seeing where maybe it's a projection that Chris is having of his wife, but it's actually maybe Snout's taking care of mine. <laughs> Who knows? It's just, it's just really odd where it's like, no, he looks like he's doing things around here. I mean, he might not be doing the hard science you guys are doing, but he's doing something and, and you're like, uh, he's babysitting you. And I'm like, I don't think he's babysitting him. I don't know. Maybe there's stuff that we haven't seen. The character of Snout, I find very interesting because he seems to be the most philosophical of the scientists and the way that he talks about, you know, man, expanding his borders out into space and what man really needs as a mirror. And then, of course, we know, like, Tarkovsky did a movie called The Mirror, but mirrors play such a big role in this movie. There's so many times where, you know, folks are looking at themselves. Hari's looking at herself quite often. And then there's that sequence where Chris is sick and the whole room turns into mirrors where you really can't tell what is up and what is down. That scene is just absolutely amazing to see what they did with that set. Well, and throughout, there's a lot of things with reflections. Yeah, you were saying people are looking in mirrors, but also there's that amazing shot when she's, I think it's after she's drunk the the liquid oxygen and you see her face upside down and sort of distorted and then and then sort of right side up staring out and it's 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 very disturbing and and that's where i really felt aware of how much reflective surfaces were part of everything in the film i think even like from the earliest shots in the movie you see the reflection of that cabin in that pond where we're going to see chris wash his hand and everything it's just her hands there's just so many reflective surfaces which is ironic you know kind of going back to your point rob as far as this is not that super sleek clean science that we're going to get we don't have the polished mirror surfaces of everything around us this is much more dirty but there definitely are a lot of mirrors around for people to to check themselves in or look at other people in and that's the thing that's amazing to me. I mean, from a technical standpoint, and Keith is probably the expert in the room to talk about this, but but working around mirrors with a camera and a crew and trying to shoot something has got to be just a challenge. 
Well, it is, although it's also it's so visually exciting that you there you just plan for it. I mean, I've done things where you have, I've, you know, I've shot sets that were literally mirrors on every wall. And it's just you have to just really think where's the camera going to be hidden? How are we going to do it? But the the what mirrors give you and especially in a situation like this where it's so thematically, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the planning was how do we use these things? And if we're going to create a hospital room that's mirrored floors and mirrored walls and, you know, how, where's the camera going to be? But there's all sorts of, I mean, I did a, a mirrored elevator on, on all sides and, and basically we just used a, a one-way glass mirror. So we were back, actually back behind the glass and we just pumped much more light into the elevator so that we were able to not actually be in the elevator. Um, and so we were able to shoot through the mirror. Um, so there's all sorts of things you can do. You just have, you can't, you can't wing it, but there are, there are tricks. You brought up that scene with her uh, drinking the liquid oxygen. That is, it's such a simple effect of them playing it backwards to bring her back to life, but it is so well done. It is just so odd, the the sound of it all and the way that she's acting. And then I know that uh, Tarkovsky actually had the actor that plays Chris move into the scene uh, at a certain point. Um, so it looked like a, a normal motion when they played it back. So it was actually really good backwards acting that he was doing as well as, as what she was doing. Well, it, it creates a really creepy on. Yeah. It's, it's very, it, it's very otherworldly and, and it's not quite clear why. And I think that kind of thing is just, I love that stuff. We were talking about the way that, that Hari is becoming more human. And there's that scene, you know, Rob, you're talking about the, the study or the boardroom. And even though that's the most quote unquote normal room of this place, it doesn't look like a space station at all. Snout even makes a point to say there are no windows in here. So there's no view of Solaris in this room. Even though that's the most normalized room in the whole place, that's also where the most fantastical piece of the film happens is when they go into a state of weightlessness for a little bit. And that's also around the time that they're looking at that Bruegel painting. And at one point, there's a flashback or it's almost like Chris has a dream. And the way that they come out of the dream, it, it feels like Hari has shared his dream. And it's like we've gone from her not knowing how to sleep to her now being able to dream and share the same dream with Chris, which makes sense since she's a kind of a creature of his dreams but it feels like she becomes a fully realized protagonist by that time i know we're kind of jumping back and forth in time which i think is absolutely fitting for this movie because time is time is our enemy and and time is such a, a a a player in this movie you know i did talk about that driving scene and after watching the movie and this wasn't my original point but i'll go here anyway after watching this movie I almost think that the driving scene is intentional for where it's at. And then it puts you in a really weird state of mind. And it like, it literally lulled me to sleep those first two times that I was watching it. And I'm very curious as far as was this an intentional thing to put me in a different headspace for once I get out into space with Chris, because it feels like I'm in a, you know, it feels like I've been lulled into this area where now I should be able to accept things a little bit better. It's almost like this movie's trying to hypnotize me. Well, I, that's a really interesting. I, that didn't strike me watching it, but hearing you say it, it certainly could have been part of the, the the thinking or the feeling of deciding to put that long sequence there. 
Um, I mean, to me, it felt like it had something to do also with just, again, that technological coldness that, that, you know, cause you've been, you've sort of been in the country in the house that they, that they, you know, and now he's transitioning back into this very cold city. And, you know, it, it's a Japanese city and that's never really explained, but it's very, it's concrete everywhere. You don't see a shred of anything natural and, and, and out, out of the house, everything was sort of nature and the whole opening of the film and the horse and trees. And so to me, it was, it was also about that sort of the, the, the grinding soullessness of this sort of unnatural place, which, which was the journey that, that Chris was about to take himself. But I also think that, yeah, there's something very hypnotic about the rhythms and, and I would not be surprised at all if that was part of the part, you know, a subtle sort of, a part of the idea of like, yeah, okay, if they get bored, that's okay because I'm changing gears here, and that's, that would be that. I, that would be a very interesting piece of filmmaking if it was the intention. Yeah, and also the use of the sound and the sound effects at that point—that it's the, like it's the the sounds of the city, but kind of electronically altered, and then they just seem to get louder and louder and more cacophonous as we go along. And then that cut to space—I mean, it's not as it's not as jarring of a cut as it is, you know, throwing a bone up in the air and coming down as a spaceship. But it definitely seems to be like, okay, now we're changing gears. Now we're going into something else. Again, I thought that was a pretty effective way of like, okay, be prepared. You you are about to experience something completely different. Sort of a visual palate cleanser or something like that. You know, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about it, and it's in a totally different context. But I remember years ago reading the um, autobiography that Tony Iommi wrote, and he was talking about writing the music for Black Sabbath, you know, the guitar stuff. And he goes, if you listen to the albums, he goes, there are these passages that I do that are acoustic, and then there's a really heavy song. He goes, I just can't pile 10 heavy songs together because you need these tone shifts in order for them to work, because otherwise it'll just all be the same. So, so maybe much the same way visually here as someone, like I said, Tarkovsky may have come to that kind of idea as a poet knowing, okay, well, here's a rhythm. And then I got to give you something here before I change to give you a different scene or a different idea. It's the Laguna sunrise of Tarkovsky. <laughs> Planet here, man. Wow. <laughs> I do have to question the whole idea of Chris getting sick at the end of the film. I mean, to me, this again, feels like another transitional period gives us a chance to get more into his dreams and all of these things. But as I was watching it this last time, I, I kind of think maybe he dies at this point and gets replaced by something from Solaris that just feels like the natural progression of the way that he's moving through things and that he is, uh, become of Solaris. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that holds any sort of water whatsoever, but just the way that he seems to be again, saying goodbye to everything, um, you know, through his mother and through Hari, you know, eventually she's going to disappear annihilated by Sartorius of her own request. But yeah, it just feels like this is another transition spot. And when he comes out of it, it doesn't feel like the same Chris to me. That was the one that went into that, um, the sickness. It's, it's, that's interesting. I am. Um, and you can say I'm full of shit. That's fine. The delightful thing about a film like this is that uh, there's all sorts of things that are that. How can you say anything is full of shit? I mean, it's like I mean, that's a very reasonable. Uh, again, I've, I, I didn't have that reaction watching it, but it, but I'm, I'm actually intrigued to go, oh, huh. If I watched it again, would that would it feel that way to me? 
I was called so, so caught up in the idea of it sort of being his his rebirth more than his death. It's like his his coming to find a true self that that I, I kind of couldn't picture it being that oh he's he's been just replaced. It's not you know because I feel like the whole film is about kind of rebirth as opposed to being replaced, which is much more it's a much colder, darker sort of version of it. And I, and I, and I feel like, I just feel like I, I, maybe it was just reading how much he didn't like how cold 2001 was and that to him ultimately it was pessimistic and dark and it wasn't really about the, the beauty of humanity. And so I guess maybe that's what pushed me to sort of see it as ultimately about Chris actually going on a really positive journey, even if a hellish one, as opposed to like, like like that he might be replaced by the planet and not even be chris anymore but i don't know it's it certainly does it, it's not like that doesn't make sense you could track the version you just described and that that's not crazy to me it's a very strange dissolve um that we're looking at him and then it dissolves and we're looking at the back of him and it's just like okay that's a strange transition to me Rob, you're talking about this whole idea of like, hey, Snout's been taking care of you. The one, what I would consider really important moment of the movie is not shown because they talk about, hey, we're going to take an encephalograph of you, Chris, and we're going to shoot it down to the planet because the planet can only read our minds while we're sleeping. So we're going to, to take an encephalograph of you while you're awake and shoot that down to the planet. And then I think think in the movie and here's where i'm maybe confusing the movie in the book but in the book for sure it starts to react after they shoot the encephalogram down and it starts to form islands and that kind of presages the end of the tarkovsky book or the tarkovsky movie which is different than the end of the lem book but it kind of has a similar idea as far as islands on solaris to me, I just saw it as he wasn't, he was not coming back. That's what I took that dissolve because he's facing forward towards us. And it's like, this is my opportunity to leave. And it's like, no, I'm not. And instead of just having him turn around and go back, they just did it with a dissolve to make you really understand it. Like, because it is weird. It is weird dissolve. Okay. I'm glad it wasn't just me. That makes sense to me. Again, I didn't necessarily think it when I watched it, but hearing it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that 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 works in quotes. That makes it that that kind of feels of a piece with the film. Well, yeah, your whole idea of rebirth works as well. I mean, even whether it's a rebirth from death or it's just a rebirth from the sickness that he has and that, you know, you you mentioned earlier that he is a very different person here on Solaris and on Solaris Station that he was on Earth. He is not that cold person anymore. And now when Hari decides to get herself annihilated, it's such a huge blow for him. And I think it, you know, it's the second time or possibly the third or maybe even the fourth time that she's died. And, you know, it, it's got to have such a huge effect on him. Well, and that, and it is that whole question of like when when is death really death, and at what point do you really lose somebody? And 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 I mean, one thing that that, that strikes me that that does confuse me about the film emotionally, and, and and obviously as part of it is that unless I'm being completely stupid and not remembering anything, that that Hari is not there at the end on his island, which is so odd. I mean, here's this person who is his whole reason for his for his rebirth. The whole, you know, like the, the, the thing that he was with, I'll give up truth for you. I'll give up science for you. I'll give up 
I mean, she sort of was was his reason. And yet, when when the when the planet creates sort of his island to be his presumably permanent home, she has been left off of it. And and I found that very weird and disturbing and uncomfortable. Again, not like something's wrong with the film, but like just yeah, as a viewer, it was like, ooh, that's you know, it takes away any hint of this being this idyllic thing that he's now back in nature and among his, you know, near his father and which is all fine. And, but it's like, but he, love is what sort of brought him to the edge of that place. And now he's going to be without her, which, which I thought was just, it was fascinating. It was a really interesting and I, it was not what I wanted as a emotionally, but it's not what I wanted as a viewer. I mean, again, I don't think it's a flaw in the film. I think it's, it's a challenging thing the film does, but it's not what you expect. You expect, okay, if he's going to have this new existence, she'll be the center of it. And instead she's not there at all. And that was, I thought, one of the most striking choices that Tarkovsky made. Yeah. When he goes to the surface of Solaris and is there and he's back at that same cabin that we saw at the beginning, but it's different and it's wrong. And he goes up to that window and he looks in and his father's there and it's raining on the inside of the cabin it just, it reminded me of another horrible, stupid reference. It reminded me of the uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Horrors, where it's basically the sound of thunder. And he, you know, has done all of these things. You know, he keeps going back in time and something screws up and he comes back to the world. And, you know, here's this horrible world that Ned Flanders runs as a dictator. He does all of these things. He comes back to another world and it seems to be almost exactly the same, except Marge and the kids all have snake tongues. And he's just like, yeah, good enough. So it's like he comes to this place on Solaris and it's like, it's raining in the house. It's like, yeah, okay. It's good enough. Good morning, Father dear. Hope you're well. Are we taking the new Lexus to Aunt Patty and Selma's funeral today? Mm, fabulous house. Well-behaved kids. Sisters-in-law dead. Luxury sedan. Woohoo! I hit the jackpot! Marge dear, would you kindly pass me a donut? Donut? What's a donut? I didn't talk about how it was raining donuts in one of those worlds, but... Oh, look, it's raining again after he leaves the room and it's donuts falling from the sky. I mean, we've talked about the Bruegel painting a little bit, but I like that the end of the movie is basically a Rembrandt painting with the whole Return of the Prodigal Son when his father comes out of the the house in which it is raining and he goes and falls to his knees. I'm talking about Chris falls to his knees and embraces his father. It's like... You know, picking up that same imagery of the return of the prodigal son. Though, again, yeah, there's no Hari, there's no mother. They're back to the same place that they were when they were, you know, on Earth, except now it seems like he is making amends with his father. And do you feel that maybe the reason why she's not there is that she got him to a place where he could go a level deeper, meaning that he's made his amends with her, that it's okay now he's worked through that and now he's got to go back and deal with his family. I can see that. That certainly seems to, yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, because I was kind of thinking kind of through my own life, because Keith, as you had said, you know, we think that this is going to be it, you know, it's going to be idyllic. He's going to be with her for the rest of his life and all of this. And I kind of think about through my own life, people that either I've been friends with or people that were mentors who either are no longer in my life for whatever reason, they're, they don't live near me, we, we don't communicate anymore, or they've passed on. But because of them, I've gotten to another place. And that is about the only thing that I can think of 
in reference to how she is, you know, helped him step up to the next thing in some way. Yeah, it's like his father is still around. Hari wasn't there when he left the Earth. His father was. And I know that's not his real father at the end, but I think he's come to the point where now he can have that relationship, even if it is with the full father. And she was somebody who was tortured and depressed and all these things that to have, if it was going to be an honest version of her, those problems couldn't necessarily be solved. Yeah, I think they play that up to the point where I believe they say it right out loud in the remake, where it's the idea of the version that came back was the depressed Hari. It was the version that Chris had on his mind of the woman who was right there at the brink of suicide. So that's the Hari that's going to come back. So her makeup, I can't say it's flawed, but it's the it's the Hari that's on the brink rather than the Hari of the idyllic days. Yes. I think that, I think that, that seems true. And I, and I kind of took that in, but it, it is more explicit in the, in, in the Soderbergh version, but I kind of took that in this as well. Yeah. I mean that she's got the mark on her arm and everything from the suicide. It's just like, okay, yeah, this is the version that he remembers. He remembers the corpse more than he remembers the living body. I think. That's the thing that I, um, I, I've talked about this with uh, people before about I, I took care of my grandmother uh, the last few months of her life at home. And I remember telling my mother for a time, I'm like, I don't want this to be my last memory of her, you know? And I've had to kind of push my head back to when I was a kid and those memories because I don't want to remember someone laying in a, in a bed who's incoherent and I can't talk to them. So maybe it's the same kind of idea. Yeah, I think that's sometimes why they do all of those post-death things to make somebody look better. Maybe it helps you remember them in a little bit better of a state, but I don't know how effective that is or not. Well, it's an interesting double-edged thing. You know, not on, a lot of like some of the issues the movie raises, I mean, because it it always looks artificial. I mean, you see some often and they've been made up and, they, you know, yes, they look good in quotes, but they don't look quite real so i never i never found that a comfort, the comfort that i think it's theoretically intended to be right yeah we're then then we're back to the uncanny again all right we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 
50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books. He writes reviews. He's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from The Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know, Cinema Detours, Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there. And you basically want to pick it up, and I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him and thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at amazon.com, and you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle, your e-reader. So... There's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneat.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. When you want to get hitched, <laughs> you keep putting this off. 15 or 20 years, I'm just going to stop asking. You know, you're with the right man. Your wife. She's dead. How did you get here? I love you so much. What's wrong? That's not your wife. You're dreaming her. She's alive. You found me. I came for you. This is my chance. You don't know what you're in for. Go back. Go back to Earth. You'll die here. You're being manipulated. 
We are not taking her with us. Are you going to stop me from taking her back? All right, we are back and we were talking about Solaris. So I mentioned at the top that there were three versions so far, and I didn't know about the 1968 version before I started doing research. And fortunately, it's out there on YouTube with uh, subtitles in two parts. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But what is much better known is the 2002 uh, Steven Soderbergh. I, I feel weird calling it a remake because, you know, we had this conversation with Friedkin where it's just like, I'm not remaking the Sorcerer. I'm doing a new adaptation of Wages of Fear, the book. So it's like, all right. So this other adaptation of Solaris Stoderberg is so film literate that I know that he's taking parts from Lem as well as Tarkovsky. There are definitely things in here that weren't in the Lem that were in the Tarkovsky, but he, I have to say that he is a little bit more faithful to the, to the Lem insofar as we don't get a whole earth prologue and you know, not too much post log. I mean, we do get some. We do have a little bit of an Earth prologue, and we actually even get a little bit of John Cho in this movie. I was so happy when John Cho showed up, even though you can barely see him, but I definitely recognize his voice. If, if you want to do a little bit of when did you see this, I saw this because we're watching it for the show. I will admit I'm biased on this, and I refused to watch this when it came out in 2002 because I loved the Tarkovsky film so much that I didn't bother to watch it. And now there's part of me that wishes I could watch this without the knowledge of the Tarkovsky film because I'd like to see how it works without me comparing the two. But as for a film by itself, I think it it does what it needs to do and it. I think it does it really well. I quite like the film on its own merits. I mean, I, you know, I, Obviously, there's always the temptation with this kind of thing to do a is, is, you know, is it as good? Can it compete? Is it? But they seem different enough and they do seem like different interpretations of similar material that, you know, while I think Solaris is a I mean, the original, the 72 version, it's not the original, this is the earlier, earlier version, but the 72 version is truly a classic, classic film. I, I feel like the Soderbergh version is actually quite strong and maybe got more of a uh, dismissive thing because I, which I understand because people, when, when something is a classic and then it's, you know, there's a new version of it. It's, it doesn't come, it only competes with the Tarkovsky version, but I actually think as its own story and its own film, it's got a lot of strengths. One of the things that I really liked in here and uh, I made a note of was there's an editing style and choice that he makes in here that seems evolved out of the stuff that he was doing in the limey. It's not as, you know, French new wave kind of jump cutty and streaky and all that, but there really are these setups where there's something and then he's, and then you're like, huh? And then there's a cut to something backward that helps explain the huh that you had. And he does this in cycles. It just kind of question, Okay, now the answer back here, and and I and I like that. I think that's a good way to do it with this story. Yeah, his editing style is always something to behold. And this movie, Solaris, is a classic, but I think it's a classic film that people. And I don't want to sound elitist here, but it's like people like us, people who are like, oh, what, what what's the spine number on the Criterion Edition? Like those kind of people, like we've seen it and it took me forever to see Solaris, I, which I fully admitted to at the beginning of the show. 
I was aware of it, but I'm not sure how much, you know, Mr. and Mrs. America are super familiar with sci-fi Russian films from the early 70s. So it was probably new to a lot of people, which is absolutely fair. And I think that this was the right kind of remake where uh, Soderbergh is being faithful to the original. He's not trying to, or to the, to the Tarkovsky. He's being faithful to the Lem. He's trying some new things. He's doing some different stuff. And he's not, you know, he's not screwing up. And, and I really appreciate that. And he's got a really beautiful score in here by Cliff Martinez. The editing style is fantastic. I thought the performances were really strong. I mean, Clooney, I thought, really did a great job. And then to me, my favorite part of this whole thing, Jeremy Davies, I love that guy. And he is just such a treat to watch. And the layers that all the characters have, I mean, that's one of the things I think is really impressive. And, and I think you're right about all the performances. I think Clooney's great. I think, I think, hey, how do you pronounce your last name? McLone? McLone? Yeah, I'm not sure. For the longest time, I don't know why, but I thought that Natasha Richardson was in this movie. And then I was like, watching it, I was like, that's not Natasha Richardson. And then I looked her up, I was like, but her name is Natasha. Why do I... Who is this person? And then I looked up and I was like, oh, I've seen her in a ton of stuff. But for whatever reason, I had Natasha Richardson stuck in my head with this. It's McElhone, I believe. Great. Well, now now I'll, I'll try to remember that. But I think I think one of the things this, the film does so well that, that this out of does is I think the characters are more multi-layered. I think everybody in this in, in the film is got more levels to them. And I think the Jeremy Davis character, particularly, I mean, in, in, in the Tarkovsky film, the, the, the other people on the ship are to a certain degree functionary. I mean, they're, they're interesting and they're well done. And certainly there's nothing, you know, the, the actors are good, but here, I think both the Viola Davis character and the Jeremy Davis character, those, they're much more full out characters. It, it has a feeling of like, we happen to be following the George Clooney journey, but you could actually easily have made a whole movie about either of those other two people. Uh, and I always love that in a film when I feel like the supporting characters, yes, we are the filmmakers choosing not to make a whole story about them, but you could. And I, and I felt like both those performances and the way Soderbergh told it, I feel like everybody in the film felt very rich and, and had contradictions and was not just, you know, not simple. My thing that I had to kind of laugh to myself about when Jeremy Davies' character is introduced uh, is – on the soundtrack, there's a band that I never expected <laughs> in a Soderbergh film. Yes. <laughs> you know what it is? It's ICP, and it's the Riddle Box, which, as I told Mike by uh, Facebook Messenger before we recorded the show, I go, how perfect that he picked the Riddle Box as the song to put on the, on the background, because the film kind of is a Riddle Box, right? The story? Oh, Absolutely. I was saying it should have been Miracles. <laughs> Wasn't out yet. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I even like the whole idea that they rename the Hari character to Rhea, and it becomes an anagram of it. So it's a little bit, and then Rhea also being, you know, the star and all that kind of stuff, if you, you know, the, the homonym for it. And yeah, to your point from earlier, the Viola Davis character, she brings such weariness to this. Like she is at the end of her rope with all of the stuff that has been going on and just this mental torture that is happening, whether the planet is doing it maliciously or just completely benignly, you know, maybe it thinks it's doing her a favor and she is just 
done with it all. And then what I said earlier, as far as, you know, uh, the Chris character shooting the first, in this case, Rhea off in a rocket, um, you know, when that comes to the fore, when, when the Viola Davis character mentions that, then that becomes kind of a big deal. And that actually adds a lot of nice tension to this film, which wasn't necessarily, it was there before, but this really kind of, you know, puts, puts a nail in it. And I also think that the, the Rhea character plays this in a different way too, that she, she's very emotionless at the beginning when she first comes, uh, to life. There's a moment when she says, I'm so happy to see you. And she says it without any sort of inflection at all. And she's, she has as much emotional capability at that point as like Hal from 2001. And it's just like, Oh, okay. And then she, again, she kind of steals the show from Clooney. She becomes so much of a compelling character that you really care for her. And then when she ends up doing the same thing, you know, suicide by, uh, by uh, annihilation, it's just like, Oh man, I really wanted her to stick around and it becomes a much bigger thing. And then luckily, and I'm glad we said spoilers before, luckily she does come back and she is able to be there and they do have that happiness. And also to that point in this film, you know, the way that, that Clooney cuts his finger and then wipes away the blood, just like her wounds were cleaned earlier. It's like, okay, he is not human anymore, but I don't think that he minds it. Yes, I think that's definitely true. Although I, and maybe I was reading in, there's something in that last embrace that again felt slightly complicated to me. There's a moment where he takes this, he's holding her and he looks really ecstatic and and then he kind of takes a little breath and his eyes open and it kind of reminded me of the end of The Graduate a little bit. Like, this is all great, except it's not, it, there was some other color in there that I, maybe I was reading in, but I actually loved it. Um, and I hadn't remembered it, you know, until I resaw it, but I thought, oh, that's really interesting. It doesn't feel quite so neatly happy. And, and certainly uh, Saddleberg could have cut away from that or not used that moment. But there's definitely this moment where you where there seems to be a little bit going through his head of this is great, isn't it? Which I really loved because it kept it from just feeling like, oh, happy ending. Everything's fine now. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the graduate ending because that is this really what I want kind of thing is always reminds me of those two confused kids at the end of the graduate on that bus. And you're just like, oh, yeah, what did we just do? Did I just summon my wife from the dead and live with her forever on this planet? <laughs> and, and, and it's fleeting. It's not. I mean, I like that it's also not made this big thing. But there's. But I just seem like not accidental that there's a moment of something less than untrammeled joy going on there. This movie is also a little bit more faithful to the Lem book insofar as the Gabarian coming back from the dead and speaking to Chris in a dream. And you don't know, is this Gabarian that's talking to him or is this Solaris that's talking to him using Gabarian's voice? And I, I liked that in that Gabarian was more of a character in here. He is in the Tarkovsky version, but he's there solely as a uh, another movie within a movie. He's there as a video message in that one, but in here he's a little bit more present. The most interesting turn to me is that, you know, I talked about how 
we never saw Snout's whatever his guest was when it came to the Tarkovsky version. And then I found it so interesting that his guest in the Soderbergh version is him, rather than it being somebody that was missing from his life, that it's another version of him, and that the original in this movie is called Snow, that Snow and the the new Snow face off, and that the new Snow murders the old snow because the old snow is going to murder him and that's the 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 we see blood and we uh and eventually um they find the body Clooney finds the body um but that i found that very interesting that the whole time now it's been solaris talking through snow um to the the rest of the crew and that he is kind of approximating what humans probably should do but he doesn't seem to get it a hundred percent in the way that Davies can pull that off, and especially just those hand motions that he does while he's acting. Again, he's just so fascinating to watch. That performance, and exactly, it's exactly what it catches. It catches somebody trying to be a person and not really succeeding. And of course, it's easy though to, in the early part of the film, just go, "Oh, he's crazy" because of all the stuff he's been through. So you can you can justify it away. But it's much more interesting and actually makes much more sense when you realize, no, it's actually somebody who's not really a person trying to be a person the best they can. And it's also the Snow character that has that really horrible line. And it it rings one way when you think that it's him as a person. It rings another when you think that it's him as Solaris. When he says, I wonder if they can get pregnant. Talking to Chris, like, oh, so you're sleeping with your Solaris born wife, you're, you're, you're sleeping with, with the uh, guest of Rhea. Oh, I, I wonder if they can get pregnant. And then that triggers off this whole memory of what happened between Chris and Rhea. Again, that seems to be a moment that they are sharing as far as it feels like they are both having that flashback at the same time, kind of that shared dream that I was talking about in the study in the Tarkovsky version here. It's them remembering the same idea of, him getting so mad that she has terminated a pregnancy. And that, that also seems to give this story more weight because I don't think we ever really find out exactly what happened between Chris and Harry in the Tarkovsky version or even in the Lem version. But here we have a backstory to these characters that has so much charge to it that it really can compel the story even farther than I think the Tarkovsky can. That I completely agree with. I mean, I I find the Soderbergh version more emotional. I, I don't know that I think it's quite as thought provoking and philosophical and symbolic and rich on on those levels. But on just a, a, a gut emotional level, all those things, the realness of that backstory and and, and the richness of the characters, I, I felt like I I had a more I felt you know I I felt my eyes get welled up with tears. I had a much more you know, the, the Tarkovsky film to me is a slightly more intellectual experience. Look, as is 2001, I mean, great movies can be intellectual experiences. But I think on a, emotionally, you know, the Soderbergh film, I, I, I was much more in the, the film as opposed to observing and thinking about the film. After I saw the Soderbergh film, it pretty much came in, you know, one eye and went out the other, or yeah. that doesn't really work. But I didn't think about the movie that much afterwards, whereas with Tarkovsky, I've just been like, so what's that freaking yellow balloon? And that balloon's there on the planet. Does that mean he never left Earth at all? You know, just all of those things. Like, I'm constantly thinking about the movie 
Whereas with Soderbergh, I was just like, okay, yeah, this was good. This was entertaining. It was powerful. Yeah, I welled up a little bit, but I'm not going to have to run out after I see it and sit down at the, the coffee bar with friends and be like, okay, what was this? And what was that? And what was this? I mean, I think it would, wouldn't take me like hours. I mean, how long have we been talking about Solaris? You know, it wouldn't take us like two and a half hours to discuss the 2002 version. Again, that's not to say that it's, it's bad or anything, but it's just not as gripping to me as the Tarkovsky was. I think that's very uh, yeah. I think that that's it's it's funny because a film can be more emotional and yet at the end of the day less impactful in terms of your life or long term. And I do have to say the '68 version, I found that to be enjoyable. It's again, it's not one that's going to stick with me forever, but I thought it was really smart as far as making a TV movie that is set on Solaris Station. I mean, it can be. <laughs> It had to have cost them so little money to do this because you've got, what, four, five actors. One actor just keeps dying and coming back. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, okay, you're just recycling the same actress, you know, over and over again. So it's like, okay, this makes sense. There was a, there was a, a TV movie called A for Andromeda, uh, with, um, that was made for the BBC in the early sixties. And then they remade it again a couple of years ago. And it was interesting because it's like, uh, it was kind of like contact, like computer. There's a, a, a message from the Andromeda system. Hey, build this computer. They build the computer. The computer's like, Hey, I can help you sequence DNA, yada, yada, yada. Eventually it builds a person. As the person is about to be born, one of the scientists goes in there. She dies. And then when the new person is born, it looks exactly like that scientist. So it's like, Oh, okay. It's kind of Solaris like, but again, you're saving a lot of money. You only had to hire one actress. You know, what's interesting about this one is that it is stage bound, but it works in certain ways with being very moody and the way it's lit. The one thing that I found very um, kind of like ahead of its time was the guy that played um, Sertorius looks like he belongs in some sort of like German band of the early 80s. Like his look is very like new wavy European. When Chris first comes to Solaris Station, at least in the book, he sees a um, an African woman walking through the halls. And he's, so it gives this whole weird vibe to, like, what was Gabarian into? Like, almost like she was a shameful memory from Gabarian's past. It makes you wonder about Gabarian in a different way than if it's this younger ingenue that's in the... Well, even when it comes to the younger ingenue who's in um, the... Tarkovsky version, who I think is Tarkovsky's daughter, if memory serves right. And she is pretty like sexualized. So you're like, well, what was, what was Gabarian into this time? <laughs> is he into larger African women like he is in the Lem book? Or is he into like maybe underage girls like, uh, we're seeing in the Tarkovsky movie? And I want to say, is it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, do we see the, the shadow of the person that, uh, was there for Gabarian when, uh, Chris first lands? Uh, I don't remember seeing her in this one. The thing that's much more emphatic in here that I found is that there's a lot of dialogue about how they feel they're being experimented on 
which I don't remember in the other two. Like, it's almost like they're very angry about it. I wrote down, objects in a mysterious experiment. I didn't agree to be a test animal. It's humiliating. And then there's a point where they drink and it goes, let's toast to being the new victims of science. And it's like, wow, you guys are really emphatic on this. The planet's messing with your stuff. It's like it's introducing new variables into the test to see how these rats react. But yeah, I, I found that interesting as well, that they really play that up. Because I don't think they bring that up too often in the other versions. It's it's hinted at, or it's there's a passing comment or something. I think in both of them, where where the idea that we're under observations there, but not not it's not a it's not a core thing. It's it's almost like obligatory. Like, well, of course that's one of the possibilities, but it doesn't feel like that's the that's going to be the heart of the story. Yeah, and it would almost work well in the Tarkovsky version just because it being made in, you know, 1970s Russia and like hearing the re- reading his diaries and seeing the objections from the Soviet, uh, the, the film commission, like, oh, you need to remove this, remove that. And it's just like some of the things that they were requesting just seemed so weird and so arbitrary. And it was like, what are you doing? And then, like, you know, oh, if there was any sort of, like, religious angle, of course, that has to be removed from it. And, uh, yeah, I found that list to be very, very interesting. And then to see that he actually got away with outcutting most of the things that they were objecting to. And they're not even the things that are in, like, the, the cut scenes on the Criterion disc. Did you guys get a chance to see that list? It's in his uh, Time After Time, the, the oh, diaries yeah, that he yeah, has. That, yeah. I think he went through such hell with uh, Andre Rublev and um, you know the, the previous film, and it was just such a long road that I don't know if he had somebody in the uh, in the higher ups now who was more of his champion, or if he was just like screw you guys, I'm not going to make these changes. I imagine it was more the former than the latter because he had to make changes to Rublev, but eventually he managed to get a version that either is what he wanted or pretty darn close to what he wanted out. So it was, I was pretty glad for that. The 68 version to me just seems much more pessimistic in the ending. I think there's even a line. It's like no more cruel miracles to happen and all this stuff. And it's like, wow, I'm like, you're really down on all of this. This is, yeah. So if, if the Tarkovsky film was, you know, as Keith said, maybe some sort of positive or benign force of creativity. The the original TV version from the late 60s is, I think, rather negative. And then maybe the Clooney film kind of lives somewhere in between. Yeah, the Lem book ends with him going down to the planet, but there is no cabin. There's no anything. You know, there's no Hari down there. There's just the ocean. There's just Solaris itself. And he interacts with Solaris. Solaris reaches out and touches his hand and does that a few times. And then it kind of loses interest and then just leaves him alone. And it basically ends with him alone on the planet. So it's pretty bleak. It sounds like uh, like Sartre would love that. It sounds like No Exit or something. Like just... All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Aurora and Don Bluth Productions present a classic adventure in motion picture entertainment. I must tell you about him. Look there. 
It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. And heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on. It's an odyssey to another world. A world of fantasy and enchantment. To what you see and hear, you must swear absolute secrecy. It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. You like me? Of course I like you. It's a story of friendship. I mean, you don't think I'm clumsy or anything. What? I just need a few pointers to polish my style. I told you you'd love flying. I don't know how I let you talk me into this. It's a classic story of courage. Why have you come? And a world of danger. If I had actually been near a cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. I'm allergic to hay. Excuse me, pardon me. Courage is rewarded. Oh, thank you. A motion picture for everyone to share. <laughs> oh, the poor turkey fell down. I'm, I'm not a turkey. Big no, Discover the secret of Nim and rediscover the child in us all. That's right, we're back next week with a look at Don Bluth's The Secret of Nim. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Rob and Keith. So, Keith, what has been happening with you lately, sir? I just did an episode of uh, Homeland as part of their last season, uh, which is kind of kind of sad just because I've done a bunch of them over the years, and I enjoyed the people in the show, so it was kind of bittersweet saying goodbye to it. And I'm going to be doing some episodes of the new season of Fargo that's just coming up. And then a lot of what I'm doing now is actually doing less television, trying to put energy into time and then getting my own projects put together. And I've got a TV project at FX. I've got a feature, an, an indie feature that I've carried around for a lot of years that I'm actually trying to really get get going. And so it's those Sisyphusian mountains to climb. And, you know, we'll see if they lead anywhere. Yeah, currently on your IMDb, it has untitled Keith Gordon project. I'm like, oh, cool. Well, there are probably a number of untitled Keith Gordon projects right now that are out there. I, you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure if the one that's on there is the one that I've been trying to make for forever, but, uh, but there's one that I've carried around since 2003 that, that I'm, I'm hoping will actually finally see the light of day. But the thing with an indie movie is you kind of got to put everything else a little bit on the side and just focus on it like crazy. Cause otherwise no, nobody can move the needle except you. So that's what I'm trying to do. Not to um, quiz you about something that you're not working on. I heard that they're supposed to turn back to school into a TV show. Oh, I hadn't heard that, but I certainly wouldn't surprise me. It's probably it's a kind of a good idea for one. I mean, I think if you, if, I mean, although back to school without Rodney, I, I don't know if it would ever. I, that's it's sort of like, well, would that ever be? I mean, who would you get for that role? That's going to be as wonderful because that's what it's going to come down to. Like I said, I just saw a brief mention of it and some trade posting, so. Yeah, you could go really wrong with something like that. I'm thinking of like a hundred names right now that just you put them in that Rodney role and they're just going to tank, man. 
the thing about that film really was it was two things. It was it was Rodney and there was all, you know the whole amazing supporting cast. I mean, you had you know Robert Downey and all these other people, and then also you had Harold Ramis coming in and doing a huge rewrite on the script. You know, it's one of those things where it's true. The idea is sort of a quote unquote clever idea, but it's also one of those ideas that could wear out its welcome really fast. And you just happen. I mean, it was the way it was done. I think that made that film work so well for people. Uh, I also think Alan Metter, who directed it, like was a real unsung hero because he got a really emotional performance out of Rodney, who was not wanting to go there. Um, Rodney did not like the idea of ever being, you know, kind of more real for a moment. And Alan got him to go there in a couple of scenes just to balance out the wackiness. And, uh, you know, all that stuff was, I think, made it, made it come together. I'll be very curious to see if it can work as, as a ongoing show. Yeah. I mean, there's four years of college. You could go back as a freshman. <laughs> Well, at least they haven't called me about that. I get these calls occasionally to, to, to redo things that I was involved with as an actor. Like, do, you know, do you want to direct a remake of Christine? It's like, no, that's a terrible idea. And if anybody should do it, I'm the last person who should do it because that's just – it's the wrong kind of cute. You know what I mean? It's like um, – so I, I'm, I'm kind of happy that they didn't call and say, hey, you want to come do it? Oh, that's fine. You can be one of the professors, maybe the dean. And, Rob, how is the Motor City Mild Man? Well, I'm doing all right. Um, finishing up the uh, got my agreement in order, and now I just have to wrestle all the old punk rockers to the ground and get them to sign it and give me the track so I can put the record out for the Detroit Punk Archive project I've been working on uh, for the last year and a half. Thanks to the Knight Foundation, little grant money to do that. So if everything goes according to plan, that two record set will be out end of the year, probably early next year. And I'm continuing to collect stories and other ephemera at DetroitPunkArchive.com, and um just working on writing some other things i have a play that i wrote last week um that kind of poured out of my head uh it's about an hour long and i'm going to get some actors to look at it and table read it with me and see if there's something there there or do i just put it in a box and forget it or do i rewrite it and do something else with it so we'll see um just getting back into my own creative work so that's nice and still trying to get a couple of books and other things going and i may have a book to talk about next time i'm on that uh, could be coming out um end of this year or early next so i'm as mild as mild can be here in the motor city can't wait to hear the record that sounds amazing yeah, thanks. It's a compilation of released and unreleased material from the late 70s and the early 80s. There was a bar in Detroit called Bookie's Club 870, which was an old jazz club come gay bar, drag bar that then became sort of the CBGBs of Detroit. So a lot of the bands were around that scene. As for the play, uh, right now it's just titled Mothers, and it's about two women who find themselves recovering in a maternity ward, and let's just say they have a little bit of a history that they have to work out. So I was going to ask you what the play was about, and you said, well, it's about an hour. It's about an hour. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to Patreon, where you can donate to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.